Hello and welcome to this latest Mersey Waves episode. We're hurtling rapidly towards Christmas and it's pretty hard to escape any of the festivities. Decorations are everywhere, the shops are packed, Christmas songs just seem to be blasting out wherever you go. It's a time of year we associate with happiness, overindulgence, family and friends. But for a large number of people it's anything but a magical time and can feel like the loneliest time of the year. Mind, the UK's leading mental health charity, found one in ten people feel unable to cope at Christmas, and this figure triples if people already experience mental health problems. And shockingly, one in twenty people consider taking their own life as a direct result of the festive period. Today, we're talking to three people about mental health and asking them advice on how people can cope this Christmas. The panellists are Sally Laws, who delivers mindfulness training and is committed to making a difference. She has worked with Liverpool City Council in the Adult Learning Service and has also worked in job centres, prisons, hospitals and older people's groups. I think if we were honest, do any of us have that ideal Christmas? I I don't know. You know, we all have family arguments, we all have different pressures, so I'm not sure that picture of that ideal Christmas actually exists, but many of us strive towards it, as opposed to maybe seeing what is around them and what is good and what is, you know, there to be thankful for around that time of year. Dan Robinson, who founded Peloton Liverpool, a social enterprise which aims to provide a positive cycling experience for everyone in the city, with a focus on people's mental health and well-being. Uh, I tried to create something called a therapeutic community and within that it would be everyday activities uh, but making them, to use Sally's term, mindfulness to make, to, to make you connected to actually what you're doing to understand the power of that and then to promote it going forward. So we used bikes because that's one thing that keeps me particularly well. Jake Mills, founder of Chasing the Stigma which aims to remove the fear and stigma around mental health. Jake has battled with depression since 2013 and at his lowest point, attempted to take his own life. It reached a point where I thought I couldn't get any any help and I couldn't get any better and that uh, actually led to a suicide attempt uh, just over six years ago. Didn't ever think I'd be somebody who, who'd be depressed, never mind attempt suicide. And um, But I felt like I had no, no choice about that really. Hi all and thanks for joining me today for the Mersey Waves podcast. There's a lot of pressure to have the perfect Christmas, but there's a huge amount of financial and emotional strain and people might dwell on the year that's gone and maybe things that haven't gone quite right for them. So we think today it's really important that we talk about mental health issues, especially at this time of year. Um, Jake, we'll start with you, if that's okay. Can you tell us a little bit about your own personal story and how you came to found Chasing the Stigma? Yeah, um... I, I often describe it as an accidental journey, really, when people um, ask me that question, uh, because my background is not in mental health at all. Uh, I'm not a mental health professional or qualified in, in mental health yet. I'm, I've founded a national charity and running it full time now. My background's actually in stand up comedy, and that's what I was doing um, traveling the country, performing, um, generally doing okay, although. If you ask anybody else, maybe they wouldn't say that. Um, but, uh, yeah, just a, just a pretty normal life, but then without really knowing anything about it, started to develop um, 
signs and symptoms of depression, but I didn't know what those signs and symptoms were, so I just bottled that up and thought, this is just something that everybody else is feeling and other people are better at coping at it, uh, than I am. I uh, didn't really reach out for help and support. Um, there's, there's a lot of things that happened in between there, but the long story short is that um, it reached a point where I thought I couldn't get any any help and I couldn't get any better and that uh, actually led to a suicide attempt uh, just over six years ago. Didn't ever think I'd be somebody who, who'd be depressed, never mind attempt suicide and um but I felt like I had no no choice about that really. And I decided to speak out in a bid to kind of help me in my own recovery to speak out on social media about that. Not not to not to help anybody else. It wasn't it wasn't for that reason at all. It was purely just to help me kind of move on to the next stage and um but as a result that uh that's kind of those tweets got picked up in local press and then in national press and then I was being asked to go on television and radio and talking about it and what happened as a result was people come to me asking me for help and I had absolutely no idea I had no idea how, how to old were you at that time uh, 23 um, so young yeah yeah <laughs> young and, and inexperienced in the sense that I'd never been in this world before and I I'm, I'm honestly when I say people came to me asking for help I mean people who were in a serious crisis mm. coming to me asking for help and and like on, on my personal Facebook page or, you know, anything like that. Um, and it just kind of made me realise a couple of things. One, how many people are going through it, um, feeling like they're the only ones. Uh, two, how many people were coming to me rather than going to a doctor or to a loved one. And three, that power of, of real-life experience to say, I, I know, I understand. That's why they were coming to me, is because they were thinking, well, this is someone who's going to believe me. So someone who will trust me when I actually tell them this and, and what they were seeing is somebody who who come through the other side. Uh, but what I didn't want it to be was just about me. So that's why I created a, a charity, um, Chasing the Stigma and running Chasing the Stigma now. Uh, we've just celebrated uh, just, just two days ago, our third birthday as a, as a registered charity, national uh, charity. And then we created something called the Hub of Hope, uh, which is a national mental health database. Again, based on that idea that people were coming to me saying, where do I go for help? What do I do? And I was like, I've got no idea because I didn't really do that myself. Uh, so we created Chasing um, the Hub of Hope uh, as a website initially and then now as an app. And it's now the biggest and most comprehensive mental health signposting tool of its kind in the UK now, just to make help as easy as possible to find. So we can actually offer that hope to someone so it's not just about awareness raising it's actually saying look at the help that's available how many people have you helped so far uh, since we launched the hub of hope two and a half years ago we've had <coughs> over eighty thousand unique users use it um that's without us advertising it uh, up until this stage it's not being funded by anybody um and we've only just taken on uh, some staff now in the last uh, four weeks so but we're now in conversation with nhs england um to have it become the the signposting tool for the for the UK. So we've come a long way in a short amount of time, but, you know, as I, I I'm somebody who's quite... Uh, well, I, I'll admit that I've been winging it uh, completely. But you know what? I, I think the difference is that we saw a gap and we saw something that was needed and something that was not rocket science. It's not rocket science, but we're just trying to see things from a from a kind of simple point of view uh, and on, and often particularly in mental health it's those simple approaches and those simple ideas that are going to be the most effective do you see a spike this time of year 
Yeah, and I think the things that you've just talked about in terms of uh, this time of year, and I think a big thing as well at this time of year is the lack of routine for people. Having a time off, um, not only the pressures of, of being with family and the pressures of, um, you know, presents and money and food and everything. If you think about mental health and mental illnesses from every aspect, uh, Christmas is a difficult time of year, but also that lack of routine um, and that kind of just being in a house just, not being able to go to work, not being able to go to to therapy or to your groups or whatever, uh, is is a big moment for people. Um, and then facing another year, so it, it's a really really difficult time of year for a lot of people. And it's this idea that we we're pressured into having fun and 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 being happy um, is not actually the reality. Sally, is this ringing bells with you? Is it familiar bells, issues? Bells. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, I think definitely the idea of routine that, you know, services may be closed, your therapist might be away, your yoga teacher might be on holiday for two weeks, you know, so it's not just necessarily the formal therapeutic services are closed, community organisations are closed, uh, friends may be away visiting family, so people can sometimes feel isolated and maybe don't want to put that pressure on other people of, oh, actually, can I come and spend Christmas Day with you even of a friend? Because they don't want to have that sense of burden, which, especially somebody that might be experiencing something like depression, for example, their thoughts and feelings are already potentially telling them that they're a burden to others. So all of those things can kind of mesh together. Um, And as well, it can be sometimes hard for us to keep up with our own self-care routines, you know, whether that be something like going for a run or eating healthy or practicing meditation. A lot of the time, those things can kind of go out the window during that time as well, because we have different social pressures. We might have even, for example... I'm here living in Liverpool, but I'm going to Newcastle to visit my family and spend time with them over Christmas. So I'll not be in my own home, in my own environment. And for some people, that can throw up additional additional worries for people. Not to mention all the other things that go alongside those social pressures around maybe going out for a drink, using drugs, all those kinds of things that go alongside the party season that a lot of people see Christmas and especially New Year's as. Um, So I think that has a big part to play. And definitely this idea of comparing ourselves to what we think this ideal perfect Christmas is. Um, For younger people especially, seeing pictures on social media, how do I want to portray my Christmas, my New Year's, that that can be a big thing for people if they see these images of their friends, family, celebrities, whoever it may be, who are sitting around this massive family table with food and presents galore, and that may not be the reality of your Christmas. And then again, can bring up thoughts and feelings of, you know, why is this happening to me? What am I doing wrong? Why, you know, all these kinds of things can come up to play when we're maybe comparing ourselves to this ideal that I think if we were honest, do any of us have that ideal Christmas? I, I don't know. You know, we all have family arguments. We all have different pressures. So I'm not sure that picture of that ideal Christmas actually exists. But many of us strive towards it as opposed to maybe seeing what is around them and what is good and what is, you know, there to be thankful for around that time of year. Dan, Sorry, I got a bit deep No, there. no, no. <laughs> it's really important. Dan, at Peloton Liverpool, you pretty much run a programme that addresses these issues and these pressures to maybe give people a bit of a an outlet really can you tell us a little bit about that 
Um, I th- the issues that Sally was particularly referring to, really, I, I don't suppose we do address that one as such. I mean, because that f- feels like to me as part of this big day yeah. that everybody heads towards, mm-hmm. which obviously is what motivates our, our financial system at the moment. We, we need to be keep spending. If you have a look at what the figures come out, it's always about what were the December sales like. Mm-hmm. And obviously we have this lull in January. I don't want to use the reference, but it's uh, it's the first Monday after. It's the second Monday in January where people get their visa bills and everything else. And it's quite a drop. It's quite uh, the antithesis of what this big day was meant to be. Mm-hmm. So in terms of our Peloton Liverpool um, work with the, the big day as such, we, we can't really. All we can ever try and do is, is make people as connected to what is around them as we can. And uh, from being in a one-to-one therapeutic room, and I'm, I'm feeling that it could it could benefit more people than it was. Uh, I tried to create something called a therapeutic community. And within that, it would be everyday activities, uh, but making them, to use Sally's term, mindfulness to make, to, to make you connected to actually what you're doing, to understand the power of that, and then to promote it going forward. So we used bikes, because that's one thing that keeps me particularly well. I never realised that really, but when I, after I'd studied uh, therapy and once I'd start realising what underpins me, I realised that the bike was a fundamental part of it, whether it be about how I've holidayed, whether it be about how I get to somewhere, whether it be about maintaining a fitness fitness level. And, and going back to what we're talking about consumerism, that it's a, it's a really cheap, accessible thing. So peloton try to do four aspects really and that is get bikes in homes and that's a bit about recycling bikes and making bikes cheap and accessible because unfortunately they're going right through the roof we're talking about those pressures there and mm. uh, we'd run a bmx track in everton park and we get the mums coming down there and they're going danny what bike shall i get and i'm going you've got to stick to the bmx because it's bmx is cheap but they don't want the bmx they want something that looks like a motorbike now that can be into four figures. And then they start, the way the kids ride them, things fall apart on them. You know, this is what consumerism depends upon, that there's a fail on these things and that they're not fallible. The mountain bike's not meant to be ridden around our city the way they're ridden around them. So we try to get bikes in homes. The next things we try to do is get bikes in, bikes in parks. And the way we do that, I suppose, is by making projects that experience the park in a different way. And we just mentioned there, we've got a BMX track in Everton Park uh, that's particularly aimed at maybe seven to 11 year olds. And then we've got a project that is aimed at those in the winter of life where it's an old age project and that's that currently resides in uh, Sefton Park Bowling Club where we're bringing, uh, it's intergenerational, where we're bringing older people connected to younger people. So where younger people will cycle around with an older person, giving them access. So that's parks. And, and we're, we, could, we could go on about the detail mm. completely. I'm sure Sally could elaborate on that in terms of how we connect with nature. And at this time of year, that's the easiest thing for me to do. If you think, it, you know, it doesn't cost money. Yeah. If we can get out there, we can have that opportunity. I don't know yeah. whether you want to pick up on that or... Yeah, I think that's a really good suggestion of ways that 
people can perhaps take that time out that maybe isn't going to be judged as well. You know, going for a nice Christmas Day walk, whether that be on your own or with the dog or taking a family member with you, you know, and having that space away and that time out to reconnect with perhaps what you need to do to look after yourself and being feeling able to communicate that with your family as well. And I think we often focus on the person with the mental health condition themselves, which of course is important, but that can also be difficult for the family themselves because they are themselves probably wanting to create this ideal Christmas for the person that doesn't well or might be feeling down. But actually that can almost have the opposite effect that it then adds more pressure on for that person of, oh God, well, I don't feel happy. I don't feel positive, but this is what my family wants from me and vice versa. So if we can communicate with the people we're spending that time with, I think that's a massive thing to do as well. And to have understanding on both sides that we both want things from this time of year, but can we meet in the middle somewhere to keep everybody on an even plateau, I guess. Do you work with an age range, like a wide age range of people then, Dan? We like to coin that phrase, it sounds American, but cradles are great, really. Um, we're looking at creating a mini road system in Everton Park now, and that's going to be a project for toddlers. And hopefully with, and I suppose you haven't mentioned it yet, but with a blueprint of trying to increase capitals. I mean, we're speaking a language here where I need to have a break, I need to go to the park. A lot of the people that are living with it, and you'll know this, that they don't even, not even aware that they're feeling depressed or, or they're feeling like they need that time out or whatever. And I suppose that's why... I try to make therapy without the language of therapy. Mm-hmm. So actually just being alongside someone and saying, doesn't that feel good? Mm. Have you seen that up there? Have you breathed in in that way? And that, that's why I needed to get out of the therapeutic room for some, in some way. Because it was always those who were already aware that they're in trouble. Yeah. And this is the thing, and, and this is this is the way that it needs to move anyway generally uh, across the country is looking at alternative methods of support and alternative methods of therapy if that's what you want to call it because it doesn't have to be a one-size-fits-all approach that it currently is in it within the nhs system and i know the nhs are looking at different things like looking into social prescribing but that's exactly what is needed is looking at these type of support that you're talking about there actually talking to people on on their level, on, on a person-led approach to say, what would work for you? What are you interested in? Because that's how you're going to get the best out of any type of therapy and support. And it's about intervention, having it as part of your day-to-day, looking after your, mm. your mental health and your mental well-being when it's good. That's going to make it a lot easier to look after if it's bad. So so we talk about it as four different stages. So everybody has mental health, just like we talk, all got physical health. With our mental health, we have it in four different stages. So we have healthy, we have coping, we have struggling, and we have unwell. And that will move constantly throughout our lives, throughout our days. Mm-hmm. And it's about getting people when they're healthy and coping, and then maybe struggling. That's where, that's where we're gonna be the most effective in actually treating people and getting people to engage in things, looking after the mental health to know that then they can get better. It's not one or the other. You're not labelled as one or the other because you're unwell doesn't mean you can't be healthy. But if we're able to speak to people when they're not 
at that really critical low unwell point, then we're going to be more effective in our in our treatment. Yeah, I think that's really key because when people are unwell, it's much more difficult to change your frame of thinking. It's yeah. much more difficult to change your emotional state. It's much more difficult to make changes or explore new things. So I think definitely that proactive idea of actually this is a conversation we all need to have about how do we keep ourselves well, not only when we become unwell, but all throughout our days, throughout our years, throughout our lifetime, because as you say, it's, it's that movement, isn't it? That journey that people make of well, unwell. Some people might receive a diagnosis. Some people may never receive a diagnosis and they have these kinds of plateaus of, of where things are okay and then extreme highs, extreme lows that they may have never considered that they have a mental health condition. Um, and from my work, especially working as an occupational therapist in the NHS, before I came to my role as a mindfulness teacher. It is amazing actually what people can endure and what people can survive before they ever even consider that maybe things shouldn't be this way, especially things around anxiety. You know, for some people, this is just who they are. They are worriers. They they survive on two hours sleep and they wake up in the middle of the night and they're constantly worrying about things, but may have never considered that this is anxiety and things could be better with some with some small changes. Um, but I, think I think you said something really interesting earlier, didn't you? Like, when you were first talking about your experience, you didn't know if people would believe you. I mean, mm, yeah. that's incredibly important, isn't but it? So you... many people are turned away from services as well. Right. I think that's a massive issue. You know, people sometimes, I don't know how better to describe it than aren't ill enough. Well, that's exactly what it is, because thresholds are so high yeah. within the NHS services that people are being deemed not ill enough yeah. to receive the help and support. And that's because of that idea that we're not we're not talking about the, the support that's available and treating it on a on a intervention and prevention point of view at that at that healthy coping and struggling uh, stage. So so many people because we don't know what that is. With our physical health, we know, understand, and trust the process to get better. It's drummed within us. We know. We're taught at school. We're taught from the youngest stage possible. If you're feeling unwell, you go and ask for help. You get it. You get go to a doctor. Whatever they give you, you try it. If you don't think it works, you go back. You challenge it. If you think it's really bad, you go to hospital. We know that. And we're also taught that we know our bodies enough to know when that is. With our mental health, we don't know that process at all. So we wait and wait and wait until we're at that critical stage. So then suddenly there's a, there's a huge amount of people relying on services that are not fit for purpose. So then they're having to create these thresholds to say, you are not ill enough. So sorry, you're going to have to wait. And then waiting lists are so high. Yeah. So people can be up to 18 months waiting on a waiting list in some parts of the country, particularly young people. So people are sitting, just sitting there. And what we're trying to say is look at the support that's around. There's loads of different support that's around that you can maybe get at that point, but ideally you get it beforehand. Because we've got, that's why when we created the Hub of Hope, I put out an appeal that just said, if you offer any support, tell me. I didn't know. We just got hundreds. We got hundreds straight away, and that's turned into thousands. But people didn't know where they were. Yeah. So it's telling people about those alternatives to say, even if you are on a waiting list or even if you're receiving help from, from say, C say you're getting CBT once a week, you can still go other places. Mm -hmm. You can still find other support because find what is right for you because we're just not doing a good job at all of saying about that help that's available.
Yeah. And I think there's no reasons that all these things can't mesh together, as you said. Some people, I think, pin a lot of hope on one particular tool, for example. You know, maybe that might be CBT or maybe it's using antidepressants or, you know, but actually all these things can come together and support each other. We don't have to just choose one therapeutic route. We can do all these things and they can complement each other and we can dip in and out of them as and when as and when we need to. But I think you're right in that there is lots of support out there. It's just very difficult for people to navigate it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think it's um, it's interesting what you're saying now. I haven't been part of services for so many years. I've worked in supporting people for 25 years. You were years a therapist, were you? No, no, I mean, it, no, I've, I've just one-to-one support. Right, okay. Then sort of going into um, coordinating those teams for people leaving long-stay uh, institutions, um, working in university, supporting people through that, uh, trained as a social worker, trained as a therapist. Um, but I haven't been on services for all them years. I, I see these flaws. And I don't wish to be overly negative, but I feel that that threshold is going to get that little bit higher. Mm-hmm. So I can't rely on that. And people, I, I, I just, I just feel you just said eighteen months there, and we're talking now about a Christmas party. We're talking about two weeks that people had for where, where all the routines out, mm-hmm. where they're going to get all them temptations, where all their addictions are going to kick in. If, if that's what they are, if that's where the issues are, for all that space. And it's almost like a dead space, dead easy to slip between the cracks at this time. You increase that to 18 months, you could, you could have lost someone. It's, people don't like being therapised. As far as I can see, when people are in the medical model, they are accessing services. They know how to manipulate it. And they know how to play the game between the two. Because services are so, they're just done in. And they know that they just need to get to a certain point. And those accessing the services know they need to get to a certain point. And it's almost a cold war between the two. So if I was experiencing mental health issues or I knew someone who was struggling, what would your advice be? My advice... um Well, I think, I think there's a couple of things here. First of all, and we're talking generally here, but... My advice for anybody who wants help is to know that it's it doesn't have to be a one-size-fits-all approach and that there's loads of different types of support that's out there that you can find what is right for you. If one thing isn't working, you can try something else. As I said, we've created the Hub of Hope, which is a free downloadable app and a free website at hubofhope.co.uk to make these types of help and support available um, for you to find, to find what is right for you. We've got a crisis text line as well, uh, which anyone can text HOPE to 85258. Um, any time of the year, any day, um, any time, 24 hours a day, uh, to receive free confidential support um, that won't show up on phone bills or anything like that. And that's in partnership with the Royal Foundation Shout and Crisis Text Line. Um, and it's to, it's to be aware of the help that's available and not to feel, not to feel like, you can't or you don't deserve to access that. You do. Everybody deserves to access help and support in the same way that we would with any other condition at all. Um, I didn't. I didn't feel like I should. I didn't feel like that I was qualified enough or I was bad enough um, comparing myself to others, comparing my situation with other people and thinking, well, I my job or my life is good and my job is good. It doesn't matter. Anybody can struggle with their mental health at any point. Um, So kind of just 
giving yourself that chance and giving yourself that break to say, yeah, you can, you can access that help and support, but importantly, doing it at the earliest possible stage. Sally? Um, I think the best thing I can say is to not see self-care as some sort of elusive idea or some treat that we have for ourselves. We can see self-care, whether that be talking to a friend or, in my case, practice of mindfulness, as part of our daily routine. In the same way that I get up and brush my teeth, I wash my hair, I eat a lunch and a dinner, I can also have self-care as part of that daily thing that I do to look after myself. And I think sometimes we can have this almost guilt of taking time for ourselves. You know, if we feel like, as you say, that, oh, well, life's good for me, so why do I feel this way? you know things are so much more difficult for other people how why do I have a right to feel down or to feel anxious um all that you know we should be prioritizing time for others as opposed to ourselves we can you know that self-critical voice comes into play um and if we can just quiet that down and take that time get respite from that critical voice and as I say see it as part of our daily part of our life not some sort of treat that we can sometimes make time for and other times not I say in my classes quite regularly if you have the time to browse Netflix for 15 minutes to decide what to watch you can practice meditation or any type of self-care for 15 minutes in your day Dan would you be telling people to get on their bike um yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, again, again uh, the, the bike's a metaphor because it's easily accessible. It, it, it's got a number of elements to it in terms of basic mechanics, in terms of being cheap and everything. But really, it's it's it's, it's going alongside what Sally says, really. I think the one thing I would say, because we're talking about this time of year, um, a lot of us live in terraced houses, and terraced houses, they're almost a metaphor, really, because they all rely on each other. So once one metaphor, once one metaphor, once uh, one terraced house starts to lose its gutter, and it'll continue all the way down. And we, so we live in streets. Once we realise that we're out of our house, we live in streets, and we get a lot of um, cards through at the moment from people who we don't know. And I think there's something about that. It can be a twist of fate this time of year. So actually, instead of having cards, maybe if you can go and knock on someone's house, knock on a door, and go round as that routine. I'll pass you the card and knock it on and just say hello for them two minutes. That might start something. It might be a catalyst for the smile the next time and build it up like that because then our streets can look after ourselves. So there's 24 people in our road. If one knows about that hub, then that can be passed on there. But first of all, we need to be doing is just getting, getting aware of ourselves and then reaching out to others to find out what is the norm. So I think that's what I would do, try and connect with our local streets at this minute. Just a smile, just a, 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 a wave at the next door's dog or something, anything, stroke the cat. Yeah, I, I always wave at dogs though, I'm glad <laughs> that you said that. Yeah. Just let on to little dog over there. What I would just add as well is that your Christmas can be whatever you want it to be. Yeah. Doesn't matter what, what you're expected to do doesn't matter about the pressure that other people put you on. It's whatever you want it to be in whatever capacity that is. You don't have to do anything that you don't want to do. Um, so, so make it the best for you, not for anybody else. That sounds like pretty good advice to me, to be honest. Thank you very much for taking part in today's episode. 
And I'd like to wish you a very happy and healthy Christmas and 2020. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode and we hope that if you or someone you know is struggling with mental health issues, you can take on board the advice given by today's panel. The important message is please don't suffer in silence. There are people and agencies out there to help you. Please subscribe to the Merseyways podcast so you don't miss out on any episodes. And if you want to get in touch, why not drop us an email to hello at merseywaves.co.uk. Thank you.